I'm using this person as sort of an object lesson. Anybody recognize him? David Brooks, thank you. You have to be um, uh, involved in media and journalism to know this guy that shows up on NPR and um, and PBS. He's also an author. Uh, he is what's known as a New York City conservative uh, who writes for the New York Times. And there you go. You know, many of you are saying that's already an oxymoron. Um, and, uh, and if uh, you mention his name, uh, liberals might tease you by saying, well, he's the only smart conservative I know. I have a reply for that as a conservative, uh, <clears throat> but I won't use it here. <laughs> David Brooks is a secular Jew, and, uh, and, and he does not practice uh, his Judaism. And he's just written a book in which he shares his background, but he never mentions a personal God. But so when he writes a book where uh, he mentions God and certain top Christian theologians of eons past, uh, and, and then he talks about a declining Western culture, when he does this, you begin to take note. And uh, what happened is he wrote his new book uh, called Journey to Character, as he was writing it, he had just published a book in which people were actually reading. I read a few paragraphs, string, you know, right over my head. But people were actually reading it and saying, hey, maybe conservative political people have something to say. So as he was writing that, his success continued to increase. People noticed who he, were, who he was. When his picture goes up, you go, yeah, I've seen him before and I know who he is. And, and, and so he was having this great personal success but he examined himself and he says, my soul was impoverished. I, I was becoming shriveled. I was losing sight of what life is all about. And in this book, he says, Wait, the reason I'm writing this is it seems to me that we've had a, a, a cultural paradigm shift going on in our nation and in the whole Western world. That as I write about these great lives, and in the book, The Road to Character, it seems like our culture has shifted from one where character is of major importance to a new culture where high self-esteem is of major importance. And we sort of switched which is the most, not, not most popular, but most necessary in life. Any of you familiar with this? I mean, can you nod your head and say, there is a shift going on. Okay, uh, there is a shift going on, and uh, and if character is the goal uh, in your training of your children in your own life, then you understand that you assume weakness in your life and even sin. But if self-promotion is the goal, then we strive to think more highly of ourselves, and hopefully other people are smart enough to agree with us. And he has some proof. Listen to this. In 2005, not 2005, 2000, go back. I was two years old. In 1950, okay, (laughs) Gallup took a poll of high school seniors throughout the United States. And they asked this question, are you a very important person? And in 1950, 12% said, yes, I'm a very important person. They took the same survey of high school seniors in 2005. And at that time, 80% of high school seniors said, I'm a very important person. 
man, have we gotten better or what? I mean, we are all so important. And however they come to judge what makes them important, you've got to admit that this is fairly good proof that we have switched in our culture and the raising of our children to be talking about not character, but self-esteem. And what he is saying is America is in need of character development. And he was honestly saying, and so am I. And I have to say, and so am I. So in it, he describes the two ways of character development. One is through inner strength to do the right thing that may be costly to you personally, okay? You, you do it through disciplined self-effort. And you, you might read books on it or you might follow others' examples. You might discuss it with others. That's the first way. To have, uh, uh, to, to make the choices through inner strength to do the right thing, you, you discipline yourself. The other, he says, is by grace, which I will discuss later. But in our study of the book of Joseph, I mean, the book of Genesis, where we're looking at Joseph, I want to say there's a third way that Joseph presents that's probably more common to all of us. And, at least if Joseph is our example, it works. Worked for him. So it's not just by self-discipline, it's not by grace, at least what David Brooks' view of grace is. But the third way is by viewing your life's experiences as a test from God so that you will be growing in character. So uh, we're looking at this idea of intentions, understanding that people have intentions in terms of the way they do things, why they do things. But God also has intentions. So there are intentions, both divine and otherwise. And we're looking at a person right now who is, uh, uh, you might say, a subject to certain people's intentions, and his life is on a downward spiral. So if you think that the only way towards character is through personal discipline, then buy his book. Sit down in a group. Discuss it. Have a wonderful time. Or you can go back uh, several hundred years and buy Pilgrim's, uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Basically does the same thing. But if you think maybe there's another way, a more uh, life-by-life, circumstance-by-circumstance way, then Genesis 37 to 50 will help you. It's the story of Joseph. How many books does Joseph have in his library? That's right. None. How many good examples does he have to emulate? Just as many as he has books. He has none. So he's sort of standing alone in this whole process. And the one thing that comes out of this is that God is sovereign. And he understands that God is testing him through these circumstances. And and, and even in the midst of rotten circumstances, God is with him. God has a plan for him and for humanity. And he's a good God and a powerful God who will accomplish that plan. So in the end, he understands God wins because we say God is sovereign. Now, when we say God is sovereign, that means no one and no thing or no other force in the universe has the mind, heart, and power and will to accomplish what God has designed and what God will execute. To be sovereign should really be a heavenly term, but we've made it quite, um, you might say, quite human. And so we talk about kings and political leaders, and we call them sovereign rulers. But let's face it, when it comes to real sovereignty, it's more ego than truth. You see... All human sovereigns die. 
And most of them die brutally as their kingdoms rot like their corpses in the grave. Then each of them has to report to the one and final sovereign, the God of heaven. And so when we say God is sovereign, understand God is the sovereign one who will look at each of these people and to who each of these people will report. And he will tell them what they did. And he will be the final judge. Well, when we say God is sovereign, that means our God is sovereign 100% of the time. And more than that, he's 100% sovereign. In other words, he doesn't approach a situation just saying, I'm only going to give it 20% of my effort. It's all the time, and it's 100% of his effort. So if you believe that, I mean, if you really believe that, and you have a brain in your head that connects the dots occasionally, whose plan should you get involved with? If you believe that, and, 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 and I, I sense you do, otherwise you wouldn't have gone through that traffic snarl this morning. If you really believe that, then this should be our prayer. God, show me what you're doing and help me be a part of it. God, show me what you're doing. Because I understand what's going on throughout the world. I understand what's going on in my community. I understand you know, what's going on in my home. And I understand what's going on inside of me. But I can't sort it out beyond the human uh, perspectives. So Lord, show me what you're doing in all these things. Because I believe you're sovereign. And help me be a part of it. If God is God, then any of the other life choices that you make will be shallow and frustrating. But those God's way may be the right way, not just the correct way, but the powerful way. It can also, in Joseph's example, be very costly and confusing. We left Joseph off for doing the right thing. Uh, His master throws him in prison. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. That's where we leave him. How did he get thrown in prison? By the accusation that he had seduced Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, or tried to seduce her. And she lies about him, and and, uh, Potiphar has to take some steps, and he does it. So in the midst of what is going on in Joseph's life, from his home in Canaan to slavery to now being put in prison, I would not say that's a stair step up in terms of fortunes. In fact, you might say it's fortunes in reverse. And yet in the midst of that, if God is sovereign, then Joseph, as his fortunes are in reverse, he is still seeing the same God at work. He is experiencing God's presence. Because it says this like it did when he went to part of his house in, in verses uh, 20 and 21 in chapter 39. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. And he showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Like Joseph, it might be hard to trust God when life seems to be a descending stair step into misery. Sold by his brothers, lied about by his boss's wife, uh, Joseph has gone from favored son to favored servant to now serving a life sentence. For a crime that we know he does not commit. And I realize in prison nobody has committed any crime. I know that. Because that's, that's what they all say. But we know Joseph did not commit it. He was innocent. So if this is the life that the sovereign God has for Joseph, do any of us, using him as our example, have some second thoughts? 
Like, is there an easier way? Is there a better way? Is there a less costly way? And, and we probably do. Look, when I'm making decisions, I make a lot of them about survival. I make a lot of decisions about what will be best for me. I understand that. And this is what he is going through. So, but instead he serves in the prison like he served his father, like he served uh, his master, Potiphar. And he serves in the prison with excellence. And now the warden notices how well he serves. And he keeps promoting Joseph again with more and more responsibility. So Joseph's excellence demonstrates that the Lord is with Joseph still. It is God's presence that allows Joseph to keep on keeping on. He works hard, but God grants him favor also in the eyes of the warden. Well, now we get to his gifts. Because it seems like, as it says here in verse 23, the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care. Because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did, And therefore, the warden went water skiing every afternoon on the Nile. Oh, it's not in there. Sorry. But he could have. He could have gone to the uh, Egyptian desert and invented the sand trap for golf. He could have done so many things because he had such trust. My, My guess is he says, you know, I look at Joseph and I look at me and Joseph's gifts are better than mine in terms of administrative leadership. I got appointed to this. Joseph's earned it. So he becomes the convict warden and runs the place that he was sentenced to. And I, I've asked a few times in my life, you know, when it just doesn't seem like things are working out, Lord, is this really where you want me to be? And I refuse to say it is what it is. Please, would you also please never say it is what it is? First of all, bad grammar. You'll have to go back and do your composition course. The second thing. You're better than that. And when I've seen people use that phrase, they just say, I give up. I see no purpose in it. So he's running that place. The other question I've asked is, is how long, Lord, will it continue to go from bad to worse? Is there anything that could be worse? And when some people begin to ask these questions, they, they throw themselves in despair and they grow bitter and they deny God that cares about, that God cares about them at all. And so you just look at the circumstances that he's going through and, and you look at your own circumstances and, 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 and you know, you can say, I go through disaster situations, but I can survive. And Joseph goes through disaster and, and lies about him, but he survives. But it's more than that. Joseph thrives because of the gifts that God has given him. Now, don't, don't stand in line and take a number for more adversity. I don't recommend that. Life will throw you enough by itself. Joseph does not pray, Lord, make my life harder. And, and you don't have to do that either. So it's not like, okay, you know, if I'm going to gain this, this, you know, whatever God has tested me in, he's got to work harder at making my life miserable. Boy, that's a bad attitude. And it's not Joseph's. And it's not the one that builds his character. But Joseph, even though he is suffering greatly, finds that God is still with him. And he does not give up on God in the worst of circumstances. But he does not understand yet either what God is doing. 
Now, there's a difference, isn't there, between not understanding and giving up. Turning your back on God, saying, he just can't be there at all, versus, you know, Lord, I know your character, therefore, you got to be involved here. I know you haven't abandoned me. That's just not your, that's not your nature. But man, I don't understand why I'm doing, why I'm going through all of this. Yet there's a hint, a hint in chapter 40, verse 7, which we'll get to. While Joseph rises to the top, though he's still a prisoner, he has huge responsibilities in his life. And, uh, and so while, uh, while the warden can take daily vacations, uh, Joseph manages and organizes and leads the prison, uh, which is filled with government convicts. Uh, that means minimum security. That means club fed. Uh, it, it means this is, you know, if you're going to do a white-collar crime, here's where you hope you get sentenced to. And there's something about where Joseph is put in terms of all the other prisons that he could have been put in or executed. God is still using Joseph for his plan. So it's not that just Joseph is there about his gifts to hone his ability, though you must admit from managing his father's other sons, which they didn't appreciate, to managing a household, to now managing a government institution, though it's a miserable stair step, the responsibilities have grown. They have grown. So he wants to shape Joseph's heart beyond just his gifts. He wants Joseph to have a heart like God's heart. And he wants Joseph to gain a compassionate heart. You see, the one who snitched on his brothers to daddy would need to begin to care for people if God was going to use them. Let me share how that sort of worked in my life. Um, uh, I've only served in five churches in my entire life, uh, adult life. And um, in the first church where I was called the senior pastor, um, uh, it had a large group of, of elderly in it. And uh, it was the first time that I had been organizing every worship service and spending time talking to everybody involved and having a prayer meeting before and doing all these things. And uh, apparently I didn't start out well with some of the elderly, especially women. Take it easy. It's got a good ending, elderly women, okay? Take it easy. But um, this comment came up, was not reported to me, but to the leaders of the church. They said, Jim walked right by me on Sunday morning in the lobby as if I wasn't there, as if I didn't exist. That was reported to me, and I uh, listened to it, and I said, yeah, I probably did. I probably did. In fact, I probably walked by 8, 10, 12 people in that lobby without saying hi. And I'm trying to justify myself. Because I said, many mornings I'm talking to the choir director who's in this part. I'm talking to a Sunday school teacher who's there. I'm talking to somebody who's doing the prayer. You know, we got to do this worship service well. You see, what the question was, was, or the difference was, is 
I was concerned about my competency. Don't we all care a little bit about our competence? But these women were more concerned about my compassion. Well, you know, I spend several weeks justifying myself, not cursing those ladies. I wouldn't do that, but but just keeping my distance. And God begins to work. God's working on Joseph at this point. Because here he is in charge of an entire institution. Now, if you're in charge of a, uh, you might say, an entire institution, you're running a prison, you're not looking at individual faces, you're doing head counts. You don't want an El Chapo escape in your prison. So you're looking at head counts. Uh, how many were in prison this morning? You get the number. Okay, how many were there yesterday? <laughs> Did anybody die? Any new people come in? Any people released? Is the count correct? Did everybody answer a roll call? You don't look at faces. You're running an institution. But here's what happens to Joseph. In the prison, sent there by Pharaoh, are Pharaoh's own ex-butler and ex-baker. We don't know why he was displeased with them, but there they are. They were fellow convicts. And this morning, for whatever reason, they look troubled. A CEO doesn't look in everybody, and especially in prison, and look in their eyes and say, why are you troubled? This is what Joseph says in verse 7. Why are your faces so sad today? Character. From competence to compassion. Character. What a huge difference. Why are your faces so sad? And from that moment of caring for others, God's plan begins to unfold for Joseph. As he does what God does, he cares for people's souls. God then directs Joseph into his, his ultimate destiny. And it's a wonderful destiny. But in the midst of this, understand that, you know, he, he say, he's saying, well, what happened to you? That we, Yesterday you seemed fine, but today you really seem troubled. And they explain to him, uh, we're sad because we had dreams last night that we don't understand. And each of them had a dream, and they had a lot of similarities and some differences. And they were confused because if they don't understand the dream, God speaks through dreams. Their futures are revealed through dreams. And, and so, you know, we don't know what's going on here. Most of humanity doesn't know what's going on here. We're trying to survive. And here is his, Joseph's response. Do not interpretations belong to God. Tell me your dreams. Notice what he didn't say. Ooh, 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 I'm good at dreams. You ought to hear this dream and then this dream and then this dream. I'm really good at dreams. Go on, tell me, tell me. I, I'm ready, I'm ready. 20 seconds, I'll have it all figured out. He says, don't interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And they do. And God speaks to Joseph. It's not all good news. The butler will be restored. The baker will be executed, both within three days. And each dream is fulfilled on the third day. And then when the butler is, you know, when he gets his release and he walks out the prison door, Joseph says to him, now remember me because I'm innocent. 
What we're looking at here is this wonderful mixture between human intentions and God's intentions. And we get human intentions. We know when somebody has got evil plans or, or selfish plans or something like that, but we don't always see God's intentions. And so each week we take a long look at comparing the two, human versus God's intention, and especially in adverse circumstances. And at each week, God has something different for Joseph than the people around him. Something better, something bigger, something of greater purpose. And guess who wins? God wins. And so just like we have to be looking at God's intentions and not just the human ones, here, or what we've looked at in verses 37, uh, chapters 37, 38, 39, and 40, to this point. The first is that Joseph has to learn obedience. Not to be so much a self-centered person doing what he does best, but instead, uh, he has to learn obedience to God. And our model is Jesus, who the Bible says learned obedience. Secondly, he has to cling to God's character. By that saying, these circumstances, uh, you know, would make me deny God or make many people deny God. But I have a theology that will affect my response to this circumstance. We know the Lord was with Joseph. But what does that actually mean? Not just causing him to prosper, but protecting him. The Lord was with him. We need to get our theology right Or we'll only be seeing the worldly plan and not the heavenly plan going on. He needs to handle temptation. And what is about to to, uh, unfold for him, there will be so much temptation to keep uh, so much for himself and not do his job thoroughly. So by saying no to Potiphar's wife uh, and her advances, uh, daily advances to him, uh, he's finally falsely accused. But he does not give in. Finally, this week, we understand he's being trained for more. You see, these these acts of human wounds for Joseph are not God's intention. Just imagine this vase here. And um, imagine that that's sort of the life that we live, filled with... Uh, human intentions and God's intentions. There's there's certain ways that we can respond, and um, um, I have found that as as people have given uh, many of their personal stories about overcoming adversity in their life, uh, they love that phrase. I'm like a rock. You you take a rock, and I know some of you are already thinking, Jim. You always use water, and you always use rocks. This is the Rocky Mountains. It's been raining all summer. Okay. But you, you, you take a rock and you drop it into all of these life circumstances and it sinks to the bottom, but you got to admit it's surrounded, isn't it? It's surrounded by all these circumstances and, and you might say, well, you know, you look at that rock and it, it changes color. It's prettier when it's under these circumstances, but it's also because it's a rock impenetrable. Nothing can get into it. This is why when I often hear people say how they respond to to adversity, what they say is, I'll show you. What you've done to me does not define me. 
I'll get through this. You gave me lemons, I'm making lemonade. And friends, if you don't have a God, that's probably the best you'll do. But there's another approach to it. And that's the approach of the sponge. Now, I want you to know that Dave Stecker and I looked for the worst sponge we could find, not just from the old church. I mean, not just from this church, but from the old church. We looked around for the grungiest sponge that we could. This thing, I, you do not know where it's been. You really don't. So it is shriveled. It is old. It is falling apart. You throw it into the same mix of life circumstances, human intentions and God's intentions. And what do you get? The difference between the rock and the sponge is what? The sponge is able to absorb. Now, let me ask, what good is a dry sponge? Causing irritations on your skin, things like that. You know, it's not good for anything. But you throw a sponge in water and it's ready to be used. It's ready for cleaning. It's ready, you know, going into the places that you don't want to mention. Joseph absorbs what's going on so that his character can be proven. Are you a rock or a sponge? Do you approach life thinking one way or the other? Do you ask continually, Lord, show me what you're doing? Because I sure don't understand it now. Show me what you're doing. And let me be a part of it. I know that some of you who are here morning by morning searching and asking God, Lord, I do not understand what's going on in my life. Some of you have things that have happened to you that are far more serious, uh, far more life-threatening than I could ever imagine. And please, I'm not trying to simplify this. But would you just ask yourself, Lord, Show me what you're doing and help me be a part of it. Are you willing to say, Lord, I would rather be a sponge than a rock? Lord, I believe that if I absorb everything you have for me and understand your intentions here, I can be more useful. David Brooks has a second way of character. It's the way of grace. But by that, he means adversity in your life teaches you to have gratitude, a feeling of getting more than you deserve. But David Brooks never mentions God behind it. It's like singing Amazing Grace. You sing the first verse and you never have to mention God. It was grace that saved a wretch like you. That's true. It's true. Who's grace? The first verse doesn't say it. And that's how he approaches it as a secular Jew. Brooks omits God's intentions and God's presence in both ways, both the way of self-discipline and the way of grace. And like many people around us, you'll hear these phrases. Uh, I have a gift that was just waiting to be recognized. How about this one? Everything happens for a reason. Yeah. But whose intentions are behind it? When Joseph says interpretations belong to God, he is saying, I care about you, and now God has said, I'm ready for more. I've run a family, I've run an estate, I've run an institution, and soon I'll be running an entire nation. 
And that character that sees God's presence and searches for God's intentions is what is emerging. That character that is shaped by God for his intentions, not ours. That is the character that God is about to use and to reward. I mentioned this last week. I still love this verse. It's about the three servants who are given gifts by God, uh, by the king, you might say. And then uh, and then they're told to go and invest it in Matthew 25. And they come back and one has doubled it. The second one has doubled it. And the third one has buried it. And to the first two, and especially the first one, he gives this phrase. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The first two are rewarded with these words, well done, good and faithful servant. I will put you in charge of many things. What will your life be? Will you be the one who says, well, everything happens for a purpose. Hope I find it out. Or when uh, when Joseph finally finds himself sorting it out, he looks at his brothers and he says, God brought me here to save many lives. God brought me here. The adversity I had to go through to save many lives. You go, does that really work? I mean, is that true? i got one example that I'll close with. What is the cross of Jesus Christ? Terrible adversity. Human intentions, get rid of him. He's a pain in the neck. The heavenly vision. God brought me to this earth to save many lives. Let's pray. Would you just now talk to God about the circumstance that is most testing your character right now? You may not see God in it, but my Bible says he is. My God says he is. Would you just talk to him? You mention what that circumstance is. And then simply say to God, Lord, somehow, some way, in your sovereign will, use this for good, others and mine. I know you're in it. I know you're with me. But I don't understand it. Train me through this for more. Help my character be better proven, even at this stage of my life. I look to Jesus as the prime and first and most important example. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.